Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey guys, we're really excited to announce that our live show in Boston with True Crime Obsessed is back on for July 31st, 2021. It was originally scheduled for March of 2020, and that didn't happen. So here we are. Right, we all know how it went down when we were all together in Brooklyn, New York, way back in October of 2019, and then the world stopped. We were not able to get together with our friends at True Crime Obsessed, Jillian and Patrick. Also, Maggie Freeling will be joining us. We got the band back together at the Wilbur Theater. You can go to thewilbur.com for your tickets. And if you had purchased tickets to the previous shows, current ticket holders, because of the venue change, your tickets will be refunded, and then you'll have exclusive advanced access to purchase tickets to the new show. You should have received two emails, one confirming the refund and one with the link to purchase the new tickets. And of course, True Crime Obsessed covers true crime documentaries, and in this show, they cover the disappearance of Maura Murray Oxygen documentary that Lance and I were a part of. See you at the Wilbur. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to Missing on the Crawl Space Media Network. If you like this show, you will love Crawl Space, which is also hosted by us. We launched Crawl Space in 2017, and we have a huge catalog of incredible and thought-provoking interviews. Check out our entire network of shows at crawlspace-media.com. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. 
Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Tim, I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful, Lance. And this episode is really something. We speak to a detective sergeant from the Vermont State Police. His name is Tyson Kinney, and what a great conversation we had with him. This connection was made through Lou Barry, who most people know as one of the private investigators who works with us at Private Investigations for the Missing. He's working on the Dean Webster homicide, and our connection with Tyson came from that. He wanted us to speak with him and, and maybe discuss a little bit about Dean Webster's murder, which we do, and he's open to that information as much as he can give us because it still is an open investigation, an open unsolved homicide. But we also discuss what seems to be this progressive approach that the Vermont State Police has decided to take. They have enlisted the help of citizens, and, and they have a cold case specialist unit that's comprised of a few citizens that'll look into the details of cold cases and make spreadsheets and really go through all of the bullet points that might just slip through the cracks from time to time. And Dean Webster was a 28-year-old male who was murdered on November 17th, 2001 in Rochester, Vermont. And we've released two episodes on this case previously, both last summer in June of 2020. We spoke with Dean's sister, Sandy, for one of the episodes, and we spoke with the aforementioned Lou Barry in the other one. And there'll be more to come with all of this. We are planning a trip to Vermont to meet Tyson face-to-face and go over things and with a more hands-on approach, which is really the purpose of private investigations for the missing and sort of the purpose with what we do here, with digging as deep as possible and I don't know if I've ever spoken to a member of law enforcement like Tyson and and had him be so transparent and open to working with people like us. Absolutely. And we love it when current law enforcement wants to utilize our platform, work with us like that. We are willing to do that um, all the time. So this is great to get information directly from the Vermont State Police and Detective Sergeant Tyson Kinney. And this case is technically being worked on by private investigations for the missing. And that is, again, how this connection was made. And we know Dean Webster's unsolved murder is not a missing persons case, but this is at the moment the only one that P.I.s for the Missing has that is not a missing persons case. So check out P.I.s for the Missing on social. There are links in the show notes or go to investigationsforthemissing.org. And be sure to swing by our website, crawlspace-media.com, and check out all of the fine shows that we host over there in the Crawl Space Media Network. Welcome to the podcast, Detective Sergeant Tyson Kinney. How are you today? I'm good. How are you guys? We're good. We can't complain. It's um, not very often when we have 
a currently working member of law enforcement join the show uh, not to yell at us. So it's <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, you are a detective sergeant in the Vermont State Police, correct? That is correct. I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks. So thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. We are uh, really honored to uh, to have you join us. So you work with the Vermont State Police, and if I'm not mistaken, the head detective on Dean Webster's unsolved homicide? That is correct. Yeah, I'm a detective sergeant uh, with the Vermont State Police uh, in the major crime unit, and uh, currently I'm the lead detective on the Dean Webster homicide. And the Dean Webster homicide was a case that came to our attention through the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. And while Dean is not missing, his case is unsolved. But it sort of struck a chord with um, Lou Barry, who is the police officer, the former police chief who uh, works with the uh, nonprofit, works really closely with us and especially with Bruce Maitland on uh, Brianna's disappearance. And again, while it's not a missing person case, and I know it's an open investigation, we'll touch on just whatever details you feel are relevant and and important to deliver to the public. Um, We thought it was an important case for uh, PIs for the Missing to take on because I think in Lou's opinion, it feels very solvable. Uh, Can you give a little bit of a background to Dean's homicide for anyone who doesn't know, anyone who's not aware? Sure. Um, So the homicide occurred back in November of 2001. Um, Dean was a young man uh, living at the time in Rochester, was currently building a home there um, when he was discovered uh, deceased outside his property. Uh, by some friends of his. The cause of death was was uh, ruled from gunshot wounds and um, determined to be a homicide. So the initial investigators arrived on scene and began working the case back in 2001, developed some, some good information, um, but ultimately it uh, still remains unsolved. And through over the years, there have been a number of different lead investigators who have had uh, different roles with Dean's case, but I have had it since uh, 2016. And I um, feel like I've done a lot of work on it, and uh, we've we've made a lot of progress with it, and we were able to sort of curb some of the rumors that have come up. So that's a that's a good thing for us. But um, currently, it is still unsolved, and we are still working it. Did Dean have any enemies that that you know of? Um, what I can say about Dean is um, he was a young man, kept to himself for the most part. He had a real tight knit group of friends. Um, there's nothing that stood out with Dean's lifestyle that would cause us to be immediately suspicious about what happened. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, to our knowledge, you know, a lot of these cases could be from a love affair, could be from money, could be from drugs. Um, there wasn't anything that really stood out uh, to the investigators back then and also to us that really points us in a direction of of what could be the motive for this. And I think that's one of the most uh, challenging aspects of this is, I don't want to say his life was bland, but there's not a lot of things that really stood out. He wasn't, he wasn't a womanizer. He, he wasn't known for being out there dealing crack. He wasn't um, overly wealthy. So there wasn't a real good reason for anyone to, to really target Dean, uh, which makes it difficult because Ultimately, when you have a homicide, you, you need a motive and you need to find out why that person was killed. And one of the ways that we do that is to uh, really examine that victim's life and find out every little detail that we can. The more we know about a victim, the better off we are, because it gives us a number of different avenues, a number of different people to speak to. And um, specifically with Dean's case, 
Um, he was just your average person. He was a nice guy, well-liked in the community. He loved to hunt and fish and didn't really have a lot of, of enemies that uh, anybody has really brought forth to us. So um, it's just one of those cases that's been very challenging. Um, and as time goes on, you know, everyone does their own investigation. Back then, there wasn't like Facebook wasn't a thing back then. Facebook is a thing now. Social media is huge. So everyone tries to do their own investigation. And what they do is they post it online. Um, so a lot of our work revolves around trying to get to the bottom of a number of rumors that have come up, either through tips or through the initial investigation that are just being re sort of submitted to social media. Um, and we sort of go in this big circle of tracking down rumors that we know to be false or true. And, and it takes a lot of time and resources to do that. Uh, but to answer your question, I know that was long-winded. Uh, no, there was no there was no enemies that we could really point to um, to say, you know, this is somebody that we really need to look at. With Dean's case, we're kind of we're keeping a, a broad brush and we're looking at everybody because there's nothing really that stands out. You sort of answered my question that I had uh, coming up, which was, what was it? Fifteen years before you took over as the lead investigator on it. That's correct. I took it over uh, in the fall of 2016. I had just uh, transferred into the major crime unit within the state police. Um, had been a previous detective for a number of years before that, um, but came into the major crime unit and it just seemed like we were swamped uh, that particular time. And um, I think we had maybe 12 homicides in three months. And within that, a tip had came in regarding Dean's case. And I, I was assigned to Dean's case. Honestly, I didn't even know I was assigned to it. We were just sort of running as best we could to stay afloat. And being new to the unit, I wasn't aware of Dean's case at all. And um, a tip that came in, you know, potentially saying someone had information. Um, so I was uh, assigned to look at it and picked it up in the fall of 2016 and just took off running with it. And haven't looked back. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of things with it. Um, a lot of good things. Unfortunately, you know, we're still at that realm where it's unsolved, but we're working on it and uh, we're getting there. Yeah. So you mentioned that this happened before Facebook, before social media. You come in in 2016, which is the time where I think social media, I mean, it's still peaking, but it was it it, it, it was at a level of um, a pretty high peak at that point as well. Uh, how do you adjust your mindset to approach an investigation like that from the present day and having to back up to, okay, what was, I mean, things weren't on, on some level, things were very different in 2001, but on another level, probably a more like uh rural type level, they, they, they were, were very, they're very similar. I, I think, right. Like 2016 and 2001, just kind of in that area where, where Dean uh, lived, probably didn't change too much, but I guess my question is what, what, what was your approach to it? It's been 15 years and so much has just changed in the world, including your own mindset. That must've been hard. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because um, coming into this unit, um, you know, I was all amped up to work these active homicides. The ones that come in, you know, you see on TV where, you know, crime scene tape is blocked off this, section street and or you might get you know some screenshots of the police guarding a house somewhere that you see on tv and i had certainly worked those cases as a detective 
but I was all amped up to work those cases in the major crime unit and be the lead investigator on it. So when I got this tip from uh, Dean's case, it really sparked something inside of me. I didn't realize that was there. Um, I love working cold cases. I would rather work cold cases than the active cases. And I think the reason for that is because you see a lot of similarities between these old investigations compared to the new investigations. And what I mean by that is, is although times have changed with social media, with cell phones, with personal locators and vehicles and surveillance, everyone has a surveillance camera now, that stuff didn't exist back then. But what you have is the fundament, fundamental law enforcement boots on the ground, shaking the trees, old school detective work. And that's what I love. I love to see the uh, comparison from 20 years ago till now. And then to try to take today's technology and apply it to that type of investigation. Um, and you, you, know, you asked the question about social media and all these new tools that we have. It's challenging. It's frustrating because, you know, we have cases where we have a phone number for someone and we need to see if they're in a certain area. We can go get phone records. We can do search warrants to social media providers to, to pinpoint locations. You can't do that here. And it's almost like a reality check, like, okay, let's get back to basics because that's what's going to take is, is good law enforcement detective work to get out there, to talk to people, to shake the trees, to be able to get something uh, to move this case forward. Because we don't have those sort of luxuries, if you will, of being able to use technology to our advantage. So it is challenging and it's, it's almost a, a gut check, so to speak, because um, you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to play strategy much more without that technology than you would if you had it. Because with, if you have it, you can do all this work behind the scenes. When you don't have it, you've got to strategically pick who you talk to and when, because you have to assume that everyone is going to spread the word that you're out there. You have to uh, sort of allow that to happen in a way that works for you. Um, so that's sort of how the old school mentality was compared to now, where our first priority now is to is to preserve everything that we can. Where back then it was to go out and find every witness, and it's it's changed a lot over the years, and some for the good, some for the bad. But uh, you try to just mold those two things together. So that's what we've done in this case. Ah, wow, really interesting. And uh, do you specifically work cold cases now? You don't, uh, not new cases? So, no, I, I do work um, uh, active current cases, I will say. Um, within the Vermont State Police Major Crime Unit, we have six sort of homicide investigators. Um, we also have cold case specialists, crime scene techs, polygraph unit, uh, information technology unit. We have a whole uh, victim's advocate. We have a whole array of people that sort of are under the umbrella of the major crime unit, but there are only really six. And when people think of investigators, investigators that go out and do the interviews uh, and things like that. And we, we rely heavily on the local barracks to provide additional resources uh, for us to do that. So currently the way it's set up is if a homicide were to come in um, or an officer involved shooting, the major crime unit would take the case and be lead investigator, regardless um, if it's a local PD or within state police jurisdiction. Uh, for the most part, we take, I would say 98% of the homicides within the state uh, with the exception of maybe the Burlington area. Uh, but we certainly would assist with them if they wanted it. But right now, um, 
if a homicide were to come in, we all would go to that homicide and we work that homicide until it's closed. Um, it's the in between the initial pushes of these current homicides where there's sort of, I'll say dead time, um, that we get a chance to work on these unsolved homicides. It's part of the problem within our unit, but that's just how our unit is set up currently. Everything takes money, money to make things work. We don't have uh, a dedicated cold case uh, detective that just solely works these unsolved cases. Um, it's, it's a, everyone is assigned uh, unsolved homicides and when they have time, that's when they follow up on those. So. You, you mentioned something at the beginning of your answer about the cold case specialists. What are the cold case specialists? Who are these people? So uh, currently we, the state police have uh, two civilian part-time employees and they are assigned to the major crime unit as cold case specialists. Uh, their job is to, whenever we have a, uh, a case that we'd like to look at or examine to see if it's something we're gonna dive back into, um, their job is to take all of those, well, number one, locate everything. Um, you would be surprised at how many uh, files go missing over the course of 20 or 30 years or get destroyed just being moved around different locations within the state police. But their job is to locate everything. Um, their job is to um, sort of upgrade everything to how we do things now. Certainly the way we did things back then is much different with technology and computers uh, than how it is now. So they'll essentially take every file, every piece of paper, scan it, uh, organize it into an electronic thumb drive, and then they, they do what we call a deep dive and they will dive into this case and they will read every word on every page. They will learn about everything that was done and really set up spreadsheets, charts, timelines, uh, person profiles, um, everything that you would, you would think that you would want within a homicide investigation. These, these two uh, part-time civilians do all that for us. And what that allows us to do is instead of spending a thousand hours scanning a cold case, the investigators can really hit the ground running while all that stuff's being done in the background. We are able to go out and locate evidence. You know, evidence is passed around between barracks to barracks over the course of 30 years. Um, things get moved, things get lost, things get destroyed, unfortunately. They'll come out with us and they'll look at all the evidence. They'll help us pack, repackage the evidence. We'll work with them to see what evidence we actually have, where it's located. Um, and to see if there's any new tests that can be done. They're, they are, um, I'll say one of the backbones, there's a bunch of backbones, but they are, they are very uh, helpful when it comes to uh, these cases because they ultimately know the cases better than we do. They, even though they work part-time, this is their job. And they know, these, they know the players, they know who's who, they know uh, where people live, what their phone numbers are. They do all the behind the scenes research that an analyst does. Um, and allows which allows us to do, you know, the hands-on interviews, search warrants, things like that to uh, to really advance the case. So I can guarantee you, there's probably 200 people who will hear that immediately, email their bosses and and file a resignation letter because they think it's the coolest job uh, to assist the state police in something like that. Uh, I guarantee it. Um, and two <laughs> questions on that. What, what sort of qualifications do you look for? And is this something that is exclusive to the Vermont State Police or, or is this something that other state police units have throughout the country that you're, you may be aware of? 
Yeah, so one of the, I say, would say main uh, qualities that we look for is someone having the passion to do it. Someone who really wants to go into and is interested in, in learning about these cases, solving these cases, and really bringing these cases uh, to justice. Um, I would say outside of that, probably being organized, being able to work computer programs, whether it be Word, Excel, PowerPoint, things like that, um, just to be able to organize the case file in a way that you can present to a prosecutor or a jury or a whole team of detectives who may be coming in to do a bunch of interviews that day. They have also uh, presented to the Vidoc Society, which is a national society with a number of um, experts that sort of review these types of cases and sort of provide feedback on different areas of expertise that they have. So they'll prepare a case for that presentation. Essentially anything that we can think of that um, is behind the scenes, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll do for us uh, and do a great job. They've come out uh, to different locations for interviews and I like having them there because for example, if I'm doing an interview for Dean Webster, it's nice to have Heather Gibbs, who is the cold case specialist assigned to Dean Webster with me watching the interview so that if there's something that I forget to ask, or if my interviewee has, says something that triggers something with her, but not with me, she can bring that to my attention. We can go back in and do that. So that's awesome to have them. I wish we had five more of them. Uh, I wish they were full-time and we're currently, you know, trying to work on uh, getting them full-time. But right now it's, it's their part-time and, and the work that they do within the time frame that they are allowed uh, to do it. Um, they, they do a great job. I can't speak highly enough about them for that. Um, we kind of got this uh, idea from New Hampshire State Police. Being a, 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 a next door neighbor to New Hampshire, when we started our major crime unit, they had already had a major crime unit uh, essentially up and running. Uh, they had a cold case unit, which is much larger than ours if you want to call our two specialists uh, a unit. Uh, but we reached out to them. We, we, uh, we went to New Hampshire. We, we looked at sort of how they set things up, sort of listened to them when they briefed us on do's and don'ts and, and really took a page out of their notes as far as how to go about it and, and how, to, how to present it to um, the public so that the public sees the work that's being done. I think a lot of times... Um, if you don't have someone in handcuffs on the news, members of the public could see the cold case specialist sort of being unnecessary. But I can, I can argue that um, that is the farthest from the truth because they have done an immense amount of work um, on these cases. And it's just going to take one. And I think once we get uh, one of them solved and in the news and, and uh, prosecuted, um, it's going to take off and we're going to have... Uh, all kinds of people. So more the better. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Lance, it's summertime. You know, the summer's got a different vibe up here in the Northeast. You like to chill out. You like to go for a swim, have a barbecue. 
And things are getting back to uh, a little bit of that normal that we were so used to a couple of years ago. It feels good to have uh, that hot summer heat on your face, and it feels good to dive into a pool if you have access to one or a, or a lake or something. But while you're taking a break from swimming and enjoying other summer activities, let your brain feel like it's summertime and dive into Best Fiends. Tim, your brain is going to feel like it went scuba diving. It's going to feel like it did a couple of laps in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It's going to feel so refreshed. It really is. And Best Fiends is way more fun than the other matching puzzle games out there. Don't even pay any attention to them. It's all about Best Fiends. But it does come with a bit of a warning because, as you know, Tim, once you start playing this game, it's really hard to stop because you just crave the, those challenging levels. Speaking of the challenging levels and the puzzles... There's not dozens or hundreds. There's thousands of these fun puzzles to play and to solve. And there's something new every day. Tim, I'm, I just touched level 4,000. Where are you at? Like 10,000? <laughs> Almost. I'm getting there. I'm around 4,998 lands. I'm about to cross that five grand mark. Congratulations. And there's plenty more to go. And the real fun part of Best Fiends, though, is really how you strategically team up with each character based on special abilities to gain extra points and items to level up your friends. That's what I love most about it. The strategy. You talk about the strategy all the time, and there's just so much to love about it. And we want to make sure that our listeners experience this wonderful game. Give it a try and let us know if you love it as much as Tim does. And if you love it as much as I do. It's probably impossible to love it as much as we do, but I dare you to. Challenge issued. So download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Tim, if you took the word friends and you told the R to hit the bricks, that's what it is. It's friends without the R. Best Fiends. One question I've always kind of wanted to know. Uh, I, I know that the state of uh, Vermont has a, uh, a tip line. And uh, I guess because there are so many different kinds of crimes, do you, do you know, like, what happens when someone calls the tip line? I guess the other side of that is something I've always been curious about. I have only had experience with the online tip line. We have a, a, a link within our website that someone can go on and submit a tip that's anonymous. They can write a brief summary um, about what the tip is. They can provide as much or as little information as possible. Um, a screenshot of that tip is then provided to whoever the lead investigator is. And if it's a, let's say it's just a a general tip about a certain area, it typically would go to the station commander of the barracks and then he would disseminate it from there. But um, seeing how we're talking about homicides today, we, that's typically how we get most of our tips is from the, the online um, tip link from our website. And essentially our, our um, people within our, our fusion center, which is like our information analysis center within the state of Vermont, will forward that to me if they know that I'm a lead investigator on Dean Webster. And then it's up to me to do what I feel is necessary. If, it, if I feel like I need to wait on it or if I need to jump on it, then, then I just uh, I do what I need to do. And it's fair game. So. And regarding the tip that got you started with Dean's uh, homicide, did that lead anywhere? Was that a, uh, was that a relevant tip that came in? Uh, I will say it was relevant. However, we haven't been able to prove it. The information that we got was about a certain person being involved. And um, as we dug more into that, we started getting more information about this particular person being involved. 
So I don't want to say that it, it wasn't relevant because it was, um, but we haven't been able to prove it yet. And I think if, if things go the way that we hope they will, we will be able to prove it and we'll have some good news for Dean's family. So, um, but yes, it was, uh, to answer your question, it was, it, it was relative because it's, there's so much information. There's so many rumors about this person, that person, who's involved in what, are they all connected? And as an investigator, you have to really stay open-minded and you can't become tunnel vision into one particular person. Um, and that's, what's nice about these cold cases is, is I enjoy looking at them with a 20 year break because I have a whole new set of tools. I have a whole new mindset. Um, I'm not familiar with the players who were around back in 2001. So I have to establish my own uh, opinions about them and allows the case to have a new set of eyes, I guess, looking at it. And, and that's, that's extremely helpful because I may pick up something that somebody else didn't having just a bland look at it. So. Is there a lot of crime in Rochester where uh, around where, Dean got murdered, a lot, a lot of violent crime? So Rochester is a very rural area. Um, it's sort of within the middle of the state, right along the, the spine of the Green Mountains. Um, there's, I guess there's crime wherever you go. I guess it's it's all relative, right? But uh, as far as violent crime like that, no, that's, that's not a place we typically see um, a, a homicide. Um, as to whether or not Dean's case was random, um, I guess it could be trying to keep that open mind. Um, I don't think it was, but it could be. Um, I will say that it wasn't a hunting accident like some of the rumors out there have sort of suggested. And, and that's based off of the caliber of weapon that was used, uh, the distance of, um, or the range from, from Dean from where he was shot. Um, this, this person, whoever committed it, um, knew what they were shooting at, but whether or not it was just a random, you know, someone who just lost their temper or if it was a targeted event, I can't really say at this point. I think that's what makes uh, his homicide so frustrating is because, you know, you know, things are facts up to a certain point. Like you said, it very well could be a random break in someone's temper that caused this to happen because it wasn't the other things, you know, it wasn't a hunting accident, but where does, I mean, that's going to be so frustrating, right? What, where does that leave you at that point? And then you go and shake the proverbial trees, like you said, and start interviewing people. Yeah. And I've learned that these cases are, are sort of like a roller coaster, um, much more than uh, the active cases. I feel like the, the, the pressure to solve these types of cases, these unsolved homicides that have been 20 years this coming November um, is much greater than solving one that happened yesterday. And I, I say that because I feel like the family has gone 20 years without having answers. And maybe it's just me or the other investigators in my particular unit that put pressure on ourselves to, to do that. But it's, it's like a roller coaster in a sense where okay, we do an interview, we get some great information, we get all excited to find out that it's nothing. And then we're down at a low. And then we start building back up, we start interviewing some more people, continuing on. And then we get somewhere and we think of something new and we realize we can do it. And uh, we find out it's nothing. And then we're back in the dip. So it's just these constant uh, ebbs and flows and highs and lows um, with these cases. And as an investigator, that's sort of what makes it 
interesting. I won't say fun because these cases aren't fun, but um, interesting as, as being able to do it as a job um, because you never know when that chance is going to get. You never know if someone's going to call me at 3 a.m. tonight and have information that's going to break this case wide open and we solve it by the end of next week. That's the fun part is, is trying to find that one little piece of information that's going to crack this thing wide open um, and finally bring Dean's parents the information that they deserve. Uh, because keep in mind, these, with these types of investigations, we don't, we don't release information. Uh, we keep it very tight to us. Um, and the reason for that is because the only person who knows that information is the person who committed that offense. So we don't want to spread it out amongst the public. For example, the, the, the caliber of weapon that was used. I'm not going to release that information because if, if I get a tip tonight that says, uh, John Doe killed Dean Webster with this particular type of weapon. I'm going to know there's some validity behind it rather than someone just saying it's another type of weapon that's, that's not the right caliber. So um, that's the reason why we keep a lot of this information uh, tight to within the state police. And that includes the family, unfortunately. We don't tell them uh, much. We tell them, we give them updates within the within the case, if the case is progressing or what's been done on it over the last month or six months. Um, but we don't, we don't give them any details. And that's what's, what's hard, specifically with Dean's case is, um, I've had Dean's case now for five years. I feel like I've developed a relationship uh, with this whole family. They text me at will. If I need something, I text them. You know, we're wishing each other happy holidays. Um, you develop relationships with these people because you're you're essentially working for them for an extended period of time. And I feel like that's where a lot of the pressure to get these cases solved comes from. Um, this isn't your man, uh, mailbox vandalism where somebody drove by with a baseball bat and knocked it off the post. This is someone's loved one. This is someone's uh, son, their brother, their uncle. Um, and it's, it's a very serious crime. And to have to go through life not knowing what happened to your son, um, I, I can't imagine that. Um, so that's, that's why we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to, to do a good job and to make sure that we do everything we can to, to bring the case to justice. And ultimately, if, if we're able to solve the investigation and get the answers that we need and provide that information to the family, and for whatever reason, we're not able to bring charges against a particular person, for me, that's a win. My goal is to, is to provide the family with the information that they want. Now, ultimately, I think our, our objective is to, is to prosecute when we can. Um, but if, if I was able to solve this case or we were able to solve this case um, and, and just provide the answers to them about why and, and what happened, I think, uh, I think that would be a win for us. You mentioned how much pressure you put on yourselves when you're handling these homicides because you know that the family is counting on you and, and you're essentially working for them. I don't think I've ever heard anyone in law enforcement say, I feel like the, I'm working for the family. I feel like like what you just said. Um, and, and that's interesting to me. And I'm wondering what goes through someone's mind, like in your position, when you've first been handed a case like this that is more than like 10 years old, 15 years old, and you're walking up to the door of that house that the family's at, and you have to reopen this, these wounds that you know are very sensitive. How do you manage that? How, do you 
have a, a sort certain technique? I do. Uh, and this is just solely for me. This I can't speak for any of my fellow detectives, but for me, I, I just be honest with them. They are 20 years ahead of me. There's nothing I'm going to say uh, to these to these family members that's going to ease their uh, pain. They've heard all the lines. They've heard of, oh, we're working on it. We'll get to it. It's coming. We got good news. They've heard everything. Their emotions have gone high to low to high to low so many times. So the first thing I do is just be honest with them. Um, I tell them what I can. I don't lie to them. If I can't tell them, I say, I cannot tell you for this reason. And just keep an open line of communication with them. I want them to know that um, we haven't forgotten Dean's case, that someone is dedicated and is diligently working on it. Um, I want them to know that if they are having a bad day, they can call me. We can talk about it. Um, I have other cases where certain family members struggle and it is a struggle and they call and we just talk. And uh, sometimes they hang up mad at me and that's okay. And sometimes they hang up excited that they called and, and feel better and that's great. But we as investigators and as law enforcement in general need to keep the, the open lines of communication with our, with our family members and the people who matter to these investigations. Ultimately, it's Dean that we're working for, right? But Dean's gone. We can't, take, we can't bring Dean back. So the only thing we can do is, is work for the, the family members that are still here, for Dean's parents, his siblings, um, and, the, and the friends that knew him. Um, yeah, I just, I, I just try to be honest with them. I try not to feed them a line where, you know, they can see right through it and, and they can, they know that they can call me at any time and anytime day or night. So. Is it possible to not take these cases home with you to not think about them on your off time? Personally? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think about it. I think about Dean's case every day. And like I was describing roller coasters, with these types of investigations, you know, on the, on the days that it's a high coming down or coming off the high to a low, it keeps me up at night, just trying to think of the next step. Um, I think, and that's just the passion, I believe, that we have within this unit. Um, if someone didn't care, I think you could probably leave it at work. But um, we all want to be um, the one to crack this, crack these cases open. We all want to be the one to provide the answers for the family. Um, it's a team effort, obviously, but um, you know, it's, it's hard not to bring it home. And, uh, I certainly do. And I do it too much. <laughs> and what is the value of getting media for these cases, especially the cold cases? Do they often lead to tips? They do. Um, anytime specifically speaking about Dean, anytime Dean's case is in the news, it always generates uh, a number of tips for us to follow up on. And it's only going to take one of those tips to be able to break this case. Oftentimes those tips really is something that we already know or something that we've already followed up on, but information coming into these unsolved cases is what we need because the second we don't have incoming information, the case goes so to speak cold again. Um, so any information is good information in that respect, really specifically speaking about these unsolved homicides because we're already 20 years too late. So, yes, anytime we can get this out, it's, it's always great for our cases. And we had mentioned uh, our adopted father, our unofficial <laughs> adopted father, Lou uh, Barry. And 
<laughs> and you have a pretty unique relationship with him, as well as the organization Private Investigations for the Missing, as well as private investigators. Um, can you break down that relationship and where, how it used to go and how it is now and, and just how it developed with you and Lou? Because it's a pretty fascinating relationship, at least in our eyes. Sure. The Vermont State Police is paired up with Lou and um, his organization to investigate Dean's death. And it's something that, to my knowledge and to my coworkers, now, we've never done before. We have never paired up with a private investigator to assist in working together and and trying to figure out what happened to an active case. We can speak of to Brianna Maitland, which is the case that Lou had started working, which is how the state police became aware of him. But the expectations and the circumstances surrounding that were different. But nevertheless, we worked with Lou on that case, and we are still working with Lou on that case. Um, And that's where sort of this trust factor came in. And that's how we were able to vet Lou uh, to make sure that, you know, he wasn't going to do anything detrimental to Brianna's case or to our agency. So Lou had contacted me. I had met Lou from working a little bit on Brianna's case um, with the detective Angela Baker, who was assigned to that. And I had met Lou um, from just particular meetings with, with him and uh, detective Baker and, some stuff that they were working on. And a short time after I had met with him, he contacted me and and asked about Dean Webster, Um, to which I told him that uh, I was the lead investigator on it. And um, he advised that he was interested in doing some work on that. And if if we'd have a problem with that, Um, it was brought to him and and he can speak more to this. um, And I think he already has in some of the other podcasts, but um, it was brought to, to his attention through a third party um, that was doing some research on Dean's case. And she was working with Lou on some other things. And um, that's how Dean's case came on Lou's radar. But um, nevertheless, I, I, I said, I'd be absolutely willing to work with you on it. Um, it's been something that we've never done before. So obviously there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of people that we had to convince to allow us to do this. Um, but we met with our prosecutor And we met with the upper command staff at the state police. And ultimately, we decided it was a good idea. One of the reasons, probably the main reason for that is every day that passes makes it more difficult for us to solve Dean's case. And we're going to be 20 years in November, and we're not getting any younger. The case isn't getting any younger. Things are going to be uh, slowly getting harder and harder to look at. So um, we decided that we would allow Lou in on the information that we had. Um, he signed a non-disclosure order and uh, we, we met with him and gave him sort of the rundown on, on what we knew. Um, I think what's important is, um, is we are not directing Lou in any way. We provide the information that we have. We share uh, sort of information about who we've spoken to um, there's an understanding that if, if Lou were to discover some information that is time sensitive, um, that is eventually, uh, he needs to call us and we have those stipulations. Um, but we don't want Lou acting on behalf of the Vermont State Police because he's not a member of the Vermont State Police. Um, he works for the family, um, but we are sharing information. And uh, it gets 
there's some legal uh, obstacles that we sort of have to come uh, overcome um, and make those ground rules very uh, apparent and make sure that everyone is on the same page and, and that they're clear about what their role is. Um, but so far it's been great. And I love working with Lou. He's a great guy. He knows what he's doing. We're going doing our thing and, and collaborating with him and it's been great. So essentially if Lou were to go interview somebody that he thought was significant in Dean's homicide, he would have to record it, bring everything back to you folks. Like the, it would always have to be fully transparent, right? Yeah. So the transparency is what we need to, um, or what we needed to work out with him. But also it's that fine line where we can't tell him what to do because if we, if he acts as an agent of the state, then the information he obtains during that stuff can be squashed in court, suppressed. And then anything you obtain after that is, is gone as well. So, and that's a, a, one of the issues with not working with or working with private investigators is, is you never know who you're going to get. Now they can be certified. Um, they can have all these credentials of prior law enforcement, prior analysts, anything like that, but you don't know who you're going to get. And I don't think we would have done it with anyone else other than Lou, but because we had worked with Lou on Brianna's case, we really got to know Lou and Lou's work ethic. And that's really what allowed us to, for this partnership to come together. That is so cool to hear. Thank, thank you for, for doing that, being open uh, enough to do that. And uh, big thanks to the whole Vermont State Police for it. Why are you willing to adapt to these sort of newer techniques? Um, and that isn't a, uh, a major shift yet. Well, I think overall, it, you, you need to break the stigma, right? Um, you need to know who you're working with. And um, law enforcement are very protective. These cases are their babies, so to speak. And they're not going to let somebody who is not sort of within the particular circle come in and start doing things. Um, each agency has its own way of doing business. Each agency has um, different units that have different roles. Um, I think it honestly just comes down to just breaking that stigma of, of really having a way to vet who you're going to work with, know that they're going to do quality work, know that they're going to, um, you know, provide the information that you are requesting and know that they're going to um, do the best they can to help you rather than help themselves. And I think that's the big difference between Lou and his agent, his organization and others is, um, is he understands that. And he's not in it for himself. He's not, the agency's not in it for themselves. They really want the answers for Dean's family and just like we do. So um, it's, it's beneficial for him to work with us because we both want the same thing in the end, where I think that's where they differ from others is because some of these people are about their, about the paycheck and really doesn't matter about the quality of work. They just want to get paid and, and do some sort of investigation. So Really, that's it comes down to trust, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to get at. And you really need to trust who you're dealing with. And then once you do it once, you know, that was a concern that we, we obviously had. If you do it once, who's to say you can't do it again? And the circumstances have to be right. Um, you have to have the right people in place. Um, you have to know what you're, what, they're, what you're doing, what the other person's doing at all times. Um, so there's a lot of things that come together when they have to come together that when we start considering using an outside source that's not law enforcement. Um, and I think that's just really the nature of the beast and why you haven't seen 
many other agencies around the country do this type of work because it takes that extra step, all of that extra background work to do on one person. And then um, to have things go bad, that was a lot of work they did for nothing, really. It's sort of a leap of faith, but right now it's going great. And we can't say enough about Lou. And what other um, forward-thinking methods and techniques have you employed uh, when looking into cold cases? Anything with DNA or anything like that? So with Dean's case, we have done some DNA work. Um, obviously, DNA wasn't as prevalent as it is now, uh, back then. So they didn't, they didn't do a lot to preserve it unless it was apparent. But even then, what they did do was really not what we can use today, but we did some uh, some advanced testing on some of uh, the items that were seized as evidence. In Dean's case, um, we did get a uh, partial DNA profile. However, at this time, it's not able to be used because it's so minute. So it can't even be able to be, uh, say, male or female, for example. Uh, it's that minute, but it was detected. Now, this this wouldn't have been detected in 2001. Uh, but technology has advanced over time to allow it to be detected. So our hope is that, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, if this case is still unsolved, that that, that type of uh, biological evidence can be used to break down even better. And um, I hope that within the next five years, Dean's case is solved and not unsolved, but um, at least we have it. And who knows where the technology is going to go, you know, even next year. So um, that's good. And if there's anything else that we can do from, from that aspect, we will certainly, uh, we'll certainly do that to advance the case. And uh, aside from Dean's case, are there any other cases that have been um, significant to you uh, since, since joining? So I have a number of them. Um, I have one from um, Royalton, which is the Austin Colson homicide that happened back in 2018. Not necessarily a cold case because we worked that quite a bit, but um, uh, Barb Agnew as well. I have uh, Barb Agnew's assigned to me. I've done some work on that. Linda Moore, I've done a bunch of work on that. Heidi Martin along the, the, the White River area. Um, so those are all cases that are significantly older uh, that are still unsolved as well. And if anybody has any information about anything uh, cold case related in Vermont, uh, whether it's Dean Webster or, or any of these, where do you tell them to go? Do they, should they contact the state police or should they contact another channel? I, I would say contact whoever uh, you feel like you need to. It can be a local police department in your area. If you're not from Vermont, it can be the Vermont state police. I can provide uh, my cell phone number is 802-585-0171. Um, that's the department phone. I have it on me at all times. I always answer it. Um, my email is my first name, Tyson, T-Y-S-O-N dot Kinney, my last name, K-I-N-N-E-Y, at Vermont, V-E-R-M-O-N-T dot gov. So they can email me. Um, they can call me. They can uh, go online to the Vermont State Police website and submit a tip that way. They can go to their local news, anything they can do to get the information out. Uh, you can write letters, you can call us, you can email us, you can stop by a barracks and just say, I have information. Um, any way that they feel like they can, they want to get it out, we will find a way to make sure it gets to whoever it needs to. Is Ben and Jerry's as popular in Vermont as I suspect it is? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> I, I, if I can add one more thing, please. Yeah, please. You know, any of your listeners are are excited or intrigued about um, this type of work. We are hiring uh, like crazy. So, oh, cool. Um, if anyone's uh, interested, they can go online and apply and become a state trooper and major crime unit detective and and come work these cases with me. Um, you know, we're always looking for help, and and right now is a very crucial point and. Uh, we're severely understaffed given everything that's going on and uh, we're looking for help. So if, if you feel like you want to uh, come investigate Dean's case or any others, just uh, they can give me a call and I can, I can walk them through the process as well. That's awesome. That is so cool. You, you can expect my resume right after we get off this. Perfect. Call. Perfect. I gave you myself. So you've got myself. Okay. <laughs> now, do you have to be you? You obviously would have to relocate right to Vermont. You would. So you have to be a resident in Vermont. Um, but outside of that, that's really the only thing that I mean, we're pretty uh, we're pretty lenient as far as that goes. I mean, we're just once you get to Vermont, you're going to be at the academy and then we will help you from the very first day all the way to finding your place to live. We have certain people within the barracks that, that help the new troopers become aware of their, their local areas and provide adequate housing and, and different ideas. So if anybody's got any questions about that, they can give me a call or shoot me an email. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers, but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. 
Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.